0: Eva, thanks for joining me this morning. Appreciate you joining me after vacation.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Of course. So for those of my listeners that aren't as familiar as I am with you, I'm starstruck here. I love consuming your content. I know that your content has informed me as a speaker and I used to think I was good at it and now I consume your content. And I'm like, not as good as I thought I was and I can continue to get better. And so that's been very educational for me. So I'm glad you're on here. And I believe there's a lot of people that listen to this will also benefit from the knowledge that you have. But if you would start us out you know, how did you get into public speaking? What was your life before you had your own business? And just walk us through that journey.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I used to think I was good until I consume my content, and then most of my content that I write, especially on LinkedIn, is so often directed at myself. Slow down. Stop talking too fast. Pause more. Get a better story arc to your content. So I always joke that I write for me, and other people are benefiting. I have been interested in this idea of public speaking since I was in high school, and I studied it in college and was on the competitive speech team called forensics, which is not the cutting up dead people science. It's the public speaking forensics. And so I got into it in college and got really interested in radio and then had a 15-year stint in radio, producing broadcasts and podcasts and YouTube shows. And then I moved to the Nashville area to become Dave Ramsey's speechwriter. And I was Dave's speechwriter for a few years, as well as his team of speakers. And then six months ago, I decided to take the leap and start my own company, The Speak Shop, and I help people craft and deliver speeches that they're proud to deliver.
0: Awesome. I want to ask a little more about Dave Ramsey, but first, why did you decide to venture out on your own?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I had an experience in my late 20s that I reflect on often. When I was a radio producer, a portion of my job was booking broadcast guests. And so a lot of those guests had written books and they had gotten books with mainline publishers. And here I am a 20 something scheduling pre interviews with these authors to be able to book them on my program. And I started having this experience and the first time it happened, I was like, oh, that's odd. And then it started happening again and again, where I would get on the phone with someone, start interviewing them, and they wouldn't be able to talk about their book at all. They wouldn't be able to share stories. They wouldn't be able to share it in any sort of engaging way, either on the content or the delivery side. And it was shocking to me because here they had written, it's not easy to get a mainline publisher to take your book. And here they had gotten a book deal and they couldn't talk about their content at all. And so I wasn't able to book them on my program. And so in my late twenties, I had this idea that I was going to create this business and I was going to call it from book to mic and help authors take their ideas from their book onto a stage or podcast. And it took several years before that dream actually materialized, partly just life circumstances. I have four kids life is busy. There's a lot of responsibilities and it's really hard to make that leap as an entrepreneur, especially if you have all these little faces depending on you. And you have this belief and this idea that it's going to work. And I've been doing it as a side hustle for a couple of years, but actually taking that step takes a lot of courage. And I want to be a courageous person, but a lot of times I don't always make the courageous choices. And so it took me a little bit to get there, but I'm so glad I did.
0: Yeah. I think you can look at it that way, but I also hear patience when I hear about that because I have two children. So half the number is you, but (laughs) there are things that I'm delaying doing that I ultimately want to do. There's definitely a little bit of a fear component of it, but more of I want to make sure I'm in the right place at the right time. And so right now, this has been a season, I tell myself, of patience. So when I hear you saying that, it's, yeah, maybe you could have done it a little bit sooner, but I know from consuming your content that you have a good family dynamic, that you are engaged with not only your children, but your husband. And you've started this fantastic business while you were being the speechwriter for Dave Ramsey. To me, that takes discipline and patience.
1: I think there's also this level, to. When we're in our 20s, late 20s, we think we know a lot more than we actually do. And there is just something to be said by another decade of experience of just getting more experience can really help you a lot. For anyone out in your audience who's thinking about making the leap, one really insightful piece of advice I was given is started as a side hustle to make sure you enjoy it, make sure that there's a market for it. And when your side hustle gets to where you're making 50% of your income, that's a pretty good benchmark that if you were to quit your job and make the leap, that you would probably be able to make that difference up. So I had one month where I made half of my income. I'm like, let's do it. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't quite as wise as it could have been, but I thought in general, that was a great piece of advice that I pass on to others now as well.
0: Absolutely. No one said that to me. That's about where mine ended up being. And so just took the leap. And of course, nothing has gone how I planned, but even better in some ways and harder in others, but it's been a lot of fun. So you talked about being in this competitive speech early on in your life. So what sparked your passion for communication at such an early age?
1: I think I'm pretty sure I came out of the womb talking, maybe not, but uh, no, I think I realized really early on Just how much our words impact others, and how much we maybe it's being the youngest of three. I'm the youngest of three. And so, in my family, everyone talks a lot. I jokingly say that in a normal conversation, if two people start talking at the same time, we go, Oh, no, you first, or you first. In my family, growing up, if two people start talking at the same time, they just turn to look for someone else to talk to. Like they stop their conversation with you, just look for a new audience. And so I do feel like just from childhood, I became interested in it. And I just have always had an interest in communication. My mom, when I was a kid, she was really into those personality books and she would have us read like Florence Latour was this author 30, 40 years ago who wrote a lot about personality styles. And so even as a kid, I started reading some of those books and just thinking about the topic of communication.
0: Is that something that you pass on to your children?
1: I try. I think I'm a lot more interested in them learning about it than they're interested in learning about it. They do have to give school presentations from time to time. And I always joke with my husband. I'm like, okay, chill out. They are not a client. They're eight. They do not need to have a compelling open and they do not need to have a close, but I try, but who knows how successful i will end up being. My 11 year old, I think he would rather die than give a speech, which is a little bit more like my husband and his dad.
0: Yeah, but if you can't, the best idea doesn't always win. The best communicated idea does. So it's having that skill set, even if they're not interested. As I was listening to you, I was like, oh, how do I teach my children that important skill of communication? So I think that's awesome that you're doing that for your children.
1: Yeah. And I think there's so many things just tangent here that parents can do as far as getting their kids interested. Kids love seeing themselves on video. So even if it's just a little video on your phone and grabbing some of those funny antics of things they do when they're younger, because it's always great. If nothing else, it's going to be great blackmail for when they get older, but it also is just a good way to get them used to just presenting as well.
0: Awesome. So you were, had the benefit of writing for someone that is extremely prominent in radio and the financial world. I feel like he transcends a lot of different areas. And now you see him even popping up on social media, on his own content. And then also you see some funny parodies of his content where Dave Ramsey's looking at you. So he's <laughs> an extremely popular person and has garnered that with his hard work. What was it like and what did you learn writing for someone like that?
1: For those who don't know Dave Ramsey or aren't as familiar, he's financial expert he has the second largest talk show in America. And one of his big things is Financial Peace University, which is a financial program, personal finance program. And one of the most inspiring things working for him, when I was there a few years back, we were re-recording that financial course. And so he was re-delivering lessons to make it more modern with a stage and better video cuts and all of that. And I was stunned when he went down to the stage area and practiced. And I'm not saying like practice for a few minutes. I mean, keep in mind, this is literally content that he has been giving for 30 years. He went down there and he practiced for an entire day. Like, eight hours of run throughs because he wanted to make sure that he dialed in and said the content in the right way. And I watched him, he would give a portion. And then if he didn't say it quite how he wanted, he would go back and give it again to just getting that rep and that practice. And to me, it really taught me the lesson that you are never too good to practice. I think a lot of us have this perception when it comes to public speaking that the greats don't practice. And it's just all this natural thing that comes to them. But what I have seen working with people like Dave and others is the reason they're great is because they take the time to dial in the stories, take the time to dial in the humor, take the time to dial in how they're moving across the stage, making sure that their slides really enhance and add to what they're saying. And just the level of intentionality to me was really inspiring and also a little humbling because when I'm honest, sometimes on things that I feel like I'm good at, I can nail it in because I know I can pull it off. And to me, it was really inspiring to see somebody who's truly great was spending the time to do it. And that's obviously what makes them great. And I think that's true of a lot of the big famous speakers that we see. They don't just pop on the stage and deliver it. Or if they had, it's because of 30 years of experience or all of the thought leadership they put into becoming the person that can present like that.
0: I don't know if you're familiar with the book Mastery. And through Mastery, it talks a lot about That intentional practice and what mastery really is doing it over and over again and never becoming too good at that. And you see it in sports and you just mentioned it with Dave Ramsey. It's with public speakers. A lot of times we like to look at all the glory stuff. You don't want to think about how much time went into that because that's the drudgery of it, but it takes a lot of the drudgery to get to that fantastic work product that everyone gets to consume and see. Exactly. So you also produce podcasts for Ramsey Solutions. So- Why don't you tell us some of the lessons that you learned producing podcasts? From We have people that listen to this that produce company podcasts and more people that are interested in doing it. What are some lessons learned that other people can utilize in producing their own podcasts? A
1: few things. One, if you haven't yet started a podcast, but you're thinking about it, it's a great way to get your brand out there. You and I were discussing before we got on, why don't you have a podcast? I'm like, I know I need to start one. So this is going to take this with a bottle of salt, as I say, because this is coming from someone who does not have a podcast currently, but has produced a lot of them. But one thing I really think is so important is being intentional in that first minute of your podcast, you will always have new listeners coming in and really grabbing them in that hook, that teaser of that first 30 seconds, and really grabbing them with something interesting and letting us know where you're going with your content. I think another thing is stories. Stories are really what stick with people. And so having produced a lot of podcasts, a lot of times we think that, it's going to be the big names that we can land on our podcast and how that's going to affect our brand. But so often the very best content and the very best programs, and even the very best guests for us who will actually promote the show and do the things are everyday people. I always say when it possible, if you can do a pre-interview with the guest before they come on, I know that's something that you do, Matthew, because it really gives you a feel as the host, what is their speaking style? What, how do they answer questions? How much did they meander even meanders a lot? So you have to keep her on track, but having that pre-interview with someone before you actually do the show can make a big difference. And then the other thing, And this is a very tactical thing to do, but have a content plan. When I was working in Colorado Springs for a broadcast and podcast, we would literally work six to 12 months in advance, detailed daily, what we were going to be talking about. And as much as you can, you starting your year, and that's regardless if you have a monthly lease or you're doing every single day, if you can map out, okay, where do I want to be? in the year and app both those shows and also make your bucket list of who you want to have on your show and get those wheels turning now, because more than likely the bigger, the name, the bigger, the brand, the longer the scheduling is going to take to get them on your program. And same goes, if you want them to promote your show, they may or may not choose to promote it depending on how successful they are. But if you don't give them enough time with the assets for your show or the links to the show, you don't even have a chance because some of these big names, they do their social media calendar a month in advance. So if you're giving them something the day before it airs, you're not even giving them the chance to promote it. So I would definitely say have that plan, make that first minute really compelling. And then also at the end, how do you want people to engage with you? How do you want people to connect with you after the podcast, having a goal for your podcast and knowing what you want the podcast to be about and how you want clients or customers or just people to connect with you is a really important thing.
0: Mm, Great wisdom there, especially the ending. I'm going to take that. And it's interesting you talk about the compelling beginning because one of the switches we've made in our content just recently is when we post a clip, we post a snippet of the clip in the beginning of it that kind of sets the tone or the juiciest part of the clip. And we've seen view time go up by almost 40% with that just by adding that little bit of context in the beginning and not starting out with an intro or starting out with the just the beginning of the clip, having that has really dramatically increased how long our clips are viewed online. So that's interesting, something I need to work on with mine. We had, I didn't have a great opening there, but (laughs) I'm hoping to make up for that with a cold opening. Do you think that a cold opening serves as that where you start out in the beginning and you summarize what the episode's going to be about and maybe put a little clip in there and then get into the episode? Or do you think you should really strive to have a strong start to the conversation to get going?
1: I think one relatively easy way you can do it is as you re-listen to the content that most engaging 30 60 seconds just clip that and start the show with that I'll we'll be hearing more from Whoever later today, this is the show today we're going to be talking about this and this and this. Another thing I do want to loop back to your closing comment. One thing that can be really effective at the, for interview based programs is at the end of the conversation, summarizing, or if you do the close later on, summarizing your top two or three takeaways from the guest. Wow. That was such a great conversation with Eva. The things I really learned today were a, B, and C, because that can solidify in your listener's mind what the takeaways could be. Now, they might take away different takeaways than you did, but it can help solidify and it gives you a chance to have a little bit more of your thought leadership as well of what that you are intelligently listening and that the takeaways that you're going to apply.
0: Lots of wisdom, lots of wisdom for me personally and for other people that are trying to start podcasts because you don't just at least in our industry, you don't start a podcast just to start a podcast. There's typically an intention around it. And so if you're intentional, and I like your idea about having a plan in the beginning of the year and being able to stick with that plan, we produce our content months ahead. But um, frankly, we're a little more ad hoc with the podcast at times where we can let things go to where, oh, we need to book some guests here again. We're behind on booking guests. And sometimes we get lucky and it turns out okay. Other times it results in not as good of episodes as we produced previously. More fantastic advice. Well,
1: and have fun with it too. I mean, as a general rule, if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy the conversation, other people are going to as well.
0: Awesome. So we have an audience that is technical in nature. And so people have to deliver technical presentations and whether that's virtual or in person, there's a lot more of that. So it's technical pitches. And then also in their first meeting clients, there's a technical component of what the client wants to hear. What's some of your best advice for people presenting that technical information in person first? And then if you wouldn't mind, delineate how people do it virtually well too.
1: That's a great question. So one of the biggest things is as you're creating this content that you're going to be presenting is really getting clear on what your presentation is about and the bottom line of it, what they need to know and distilling it down as simply as possible into one sentence. If you can't say it in a sentence, you're not going to be able to say it in five minutes or 15 minutes or five hours. So really getting clear on what your presentation is about and doing some of the preliminary work of really distilling down what does your audience already know about this topic? And what do they need to know? Especially with technical presentations, we can have so much information that we're trying to give, but we haven't necessarily always done the work to go, okay, what do they already know about this topic? What do they need to know about this topic? And once I've given all of this information, what do I want them to do with the information? Especially very heavy technical presentations, there can be so much information And especially as we're seeing slides and graphs and data and all of the different details, thinking through, okay, at the end of this presentation, they've heard it. What do I want them to do with what they've heard? Now, sometimes the goal of the presentation really is just to inform and you need to give them the update. And this is all of the information that you're giving. Other times, if you actually want them to take an action based on what you've said, maybe it's stakeholders that are making a choice. Maybe it's... People that literally need to take an action for the company of implementing a new program or new software or new whatever the topic is just having that really clarity at the end of your presentation to do your call for action of what you want them to do with what they've heard, especially the more robust the presentation, the longer the presentation, it's going to be harder for the person to be able to decipher what's in this for me. Why does it matter the entire time? Anyone is listening to your presentation. They have one thought going through their head, which is what's in it for me. Why should I care? So the earlier you can answer those questions of why should this person care? If I was sitting in the room listening to this, why would I care? Why should they care? Well, maybe it's going to impact the bottom line of your company. Maybe it's going to impact their ability to get a promotion or be able to get the deal or whatever the thing is. But really knowing what's in it for your, the people attending can make a really big difference. And then you asked about the virtual presentation versus in-person. And this has become such a challenging world for everyone, right? I don't know <laughs> how many virtual presentations you had to give, but there's so many of the dynamics in person that are lost on virtual. So one good rule of thumb is, and this is very painful for all of us, but watch your presentation back and self-critique. And so before you even give it to other people virtually Literally pop on a zoom, record yourself doing it and watching it back and seeing, wow, is my bookshelf coming out of my head? I'm talking like the tactical, even the things behind you. Like this, gosh, is my face completely covered by my mic today? I think it is. I think it is Matthew. <laughs> when I watch this back, I'll be like, oh no, looking at both the physical environment and even things on gestures. A lot of times when we're giving virtual presentation, we just stop using our arms. But you still want to use gestures, you still want to be lively, you still want to have energy, a lot of times that might mean standing instead of sitting, so you can maintain that energy. When you have a mini on virtual presentations, you're going to still have that slide deck, you're going to be going through the slides, making sure that, and this is true for either virtual or in person, that your slide deck a company is what you're saying, but you are the presentation. Your slide deck is not the presentation. If the slide deck was the presentation, you could just send it in an email, but you need to be bringing value and energy and enthusiasm and explanation and when possible stories and humor to your content, regardless if it's virtual or in person.
0: Fantastic advice. I have a follow-up to that too. I'm thinking of business development or engineers that are delivering these kind of get to know me presentations. And where I see companies make the mistake, and I don't know how to fix them. Hoping you can help here is it's a 50 slide deck. That's all the stuff about the company. And the reason why that is because you don't actually know in that moment how you can help the customer. You think you know, but you don't really know until you get in there and you actually start to understand how they work and where their needs are. And ideally you have that information up front, but a lot of times you don't have as much of that information now. What's your advice for drawing that information out in the beginning to make your presentation more impactful as you go through? And then how would you structure your content to be able to support that?
1: So one, what I want to talk a little bit before your presentation, and then as you said, as it's going. So one thing is... Dig and sleuth as much as you can ahead of time. Find the people that you're going to be talking to as much as you can on LinkedIn. Research their company, where they're based, the CEO, what their interests are, if you can figure that out. And you'd be amazed at how much truly with a little sleuthing, right? It's a little creepy, but there's amazing how much you can find out about the companies or about the attendees online before you even start. Sometimes I'm going to be really honest. Sometimes I can even be a little bit lazy and mail it in. But like spending that extra time in the front end, okay, great, that's awesome. But now we're into it and we're trying to relay a lot of information, a lot of content, we're trying to get to know them, be receptive of it. One way is when possible, develop a level of audience participation in your content. So we all have that experience of Zoom starts at 2 p.m. and we're all joining. You're kind of waiting for enough of the bulk of the people to get going before you go. And sometimes we really are going to just start at 2 and if you're late, you're late. But oftentimes when we're giving a presentation, we are waiting for those other people. So instead of just having not a clear plan, really plan out what is that first three to five minutes going to be where you can be getting some feedback, engaging the audience, maybe using that chat window as well. And then having just a really clear, you mentioned a moment ago, the 50 slide decks with all of the brand, all of the company, there's a lot going on there. A good rule of thumb is you should only have one slide every three to five minutes of content. Now, virtual presentations, you can have a little bit more because we're gonna be moving a little bit faster through the things just because of the nature of the platform, but really stripping down your slides and really thinking through, okay, what are the most important parts as part of the presentation that I need to include? And I can always send that slide deck later on. I think one of the biggest things is figure out who your audience is ahead of time, as much sleuthing as you can do, spend that first few minutes really getting to know them. And then I also think depending on the length of your presentation, you can do checks for understanding as you go. So... What are two or three areas in your presentation that you can maybe incorporate Q&A that you can, instead of you just steamrolling, talking through all of your content because you're nervous and you're just trying to get through it, or, you know, your boss is in the room and you're all nervous about it, but are there two or three intentional spots that you can pause, maybe even take Q&A, maybe take questions in the chat on your zoom to be able to make sure that you have everyone in the room is getting the information that they need.
0: That's fantastic advice. And I know I've been guilty of that myself at times where I'm trying to steamroll through with a specific intent to try and leave time for Q&A. And I don't know why I'd never thought about it, but putting Q&A at different spots alleviates some of that. Some people might be concerned, hey, if then we won't get to some of the content. But I think that's probably the best case scenario where they're so engaged with Q&A if you set it up right that, hey, maybe you don't end up showing a slide that you were going to show, but you're communicating directly with your audience and you're building that relationship. And that's ultimately what you're trying to do anyways.
1: And we also have the curse of knowledge. We think that they need to know all of the things because it's so important and it's so important to us. And you need to know all of these things. Do they really need all 50 slides? We know you're passionate about it, but do they really for the people in the room for what they need to know to perform their job well, what do they need to do? And really stripping down your content. There's an expression in literature, kill your darlings, because you sometimes have to kill some of the favorite pieces of your content. But again, back to that bottom line, one sentence, if this is the thing that your presentation is about, more than likely you have more content than you need. And you might need to reduce some of it to really think through your audience and what they need to know.
0: Awesome advice. Awesome advice. So we also have particularly technical professionals that give speeches to call it 20 to 200 people in these larger settings. 20 is maybe where they're not as well attended, but it's typically larger groups. And uh, some of those presentations are, at least in my perspective, the most difficult to get through because you can tell that people are struggling. Some people are good at it and maybe it's because they put in the practice. Other people, it's oh my goodness, are we done with this yet? What is some advice you have for those people that once again, they're talking about something technical, maybe it's dry. What can they do to liven that up, get more audience engagement and ultimately have a better experience?
1: I think one thing is even when you do need to deliver some dry content, that doesn't mean that you need to deliver it dryly. You can still add in vocal variety You can still get a little humor lines or little quips here or there, just quick little one-liners tossed in the middle of your content. You can create a quick analogy between something you're talking about to something unrelated. Your delivery can still be engaging, even if your content can be a little bit dry. You can even partway through your presentation. Let's say it is a 60-minute presentation in minute 42, you can even do a self-deprecating joke about the fact that it is a little bit dry. Self-awareness can go a long way on our presentations, but a lot of the engagement, even if it's dry content, you can still be engaging. Vocal variety, humor, when there's an ability to create a little analogy, tell a story, if it's in person... Instead of just standing static behind your clicker and advancing slide after slide after slide with the information, working the stage, talking to people, eye contact, maintaining and holding eye contact virtually. That means maintaining eye contact with your camera, smiling, having an approachable demeanor, your body language of, instead of being nervous and intense and uptight, consciously making the choice virtual in person to, I'm going to drop my shoulders and I'm going to open up my arms and I'm going to smile and I'm going to deliver this and, with confidence. Another thing is that I see speakers, a the mistake they make all the time is they don't own the work. You want to own your work. By the time you're presenting, you need to believe in it and you should be passionate about it. And that should come through with your delivery because this is something that you have spent months working on, which is why you were asked to present it. Or it might even be months or years. And so really just owning your work and having the confidence in who you are that what you have is worth sharing. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been asked to speak. So in terms of the nerve you mentioned, the just trying to rush through and deliver it, I think part of the rushing through is two reasons. One, we truly have too much content that we're trying to pack in. And we feel that kind of frenetic energy of I have too much. Even right now, I'm speaking in a couple of weeks. And I do this for a living, helping other people. My my talk is so bloated and expanded. I need to cut it back because I would have to rush and go so fast. And I wouldn't do a good job covering anything. And then another reason we rush through is because we're nervous. So if you are someone who struggles with nerves before presenting, there are a lot of things that you can do to, before you speak. And as you're speaking to reduce some of those
0: nerves and correct me if I'm wrong, Some of these things are also corrected with practice, right? The more intentional you are, the more you look at yourself in the mirror, or you gave good advice earlier about recording your presentation ahead of time and then reviewing it. And the more confident you are because you've seen it done before, the less likely you are to make some of those mistakes.
1: It is self-analysis and it's also your first time delivering content should not be in front of an audience, whether that's 20 or 200, whether that's virtual or in person, the first time delivering it to someone else. And I'm not saying your spouse and I'm not saying your mirror, which is you, I'm saying, give your presentation to someone else on your team, someone else that will be attending to get feedback. That rep might be the very hardest because it's harder to give a presentation to two to three people often than 200, especially when they're people, you know, but don't let your first rep of the talk, be in front of people, have run it through someone else that can give you feedback and they'll hopefully give you something helpful. Wow. That didn't make sense. Or that was too much information, or I didn't really quite know what you meant there. And it will help you refine your content. And plus it will also give you the confidence that, well, I've already given it once. I know that if I could give it to whoever on my team, I can give it to everyone else. And so that would be another thing. And one reason why we don't do that when we're really honest is because we procrastinated and we've spent way too long to start making our content or we're up until midnight the night before trying to make our slide deck because it has 50 slides and we're trying to get all this stuff in. So we haven't even really taken that time to create a timeline enough to be able to have practiced it in front of someone else and be able to incorporate their feedback. Again, let's say you're giving the presentation at 8am asking somebody to listen to it 4pm the day before. It's definitely better than not doing that at all, but it probably would have been better if you'd done it three days before to just give yourself time that, Oh, Matthew said this part was really confusing. I need a change or tweak that. Or wow, if Sarah hadn't mentioned that I had this big typo on slide 17, that would have been really embarrassing. And so just making sure you give yourself enough time. And I know that sounds a little idealistic and we're all guilty of the procrastination of cramming right before we give something, but the more you can give yourself the timeline, the better the content will be.
0: I love that. Uh, At least in my experience, the procrastination almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you procrastinate. If you really diagnose why you're procrastinating. It's because you're nervous. You're not going to do well, but then the more that you procrastinate and the longer that you take to actually do it, the worse you're going to perform. And then the more you'll continue to procrastinate. So having that discipline and having that commitment to breaking that cycle is important not just in presenting, but in all areas of life.
1: I think we also procrastinate because there's part of us, it's we like to tell ourselves, oh, would have been better if I had more time. <laughs> and we kind of like that as an excuse as well. If we procrastinate like, well, if, you know, I just have time like next time. And so that's another reason too.
0: Fantastic advice. So we're going to end here in a second with what's your best routine or habit. Before I get into that, I wanted to do a couple things. So first, if you're listening to this and you want to work with Eva, if you have a big presentation or you just want to improve the way that your team communicates consistently consistently I encourage you to check out the show notes follow Eva on LinkedIn and we'll also put links to be able to work with her directly and I'm going to take some advice that she gave earlier in the show and some three takeaways that I had during the show were number one is mastery and so working with someone like Dave Ramsey you might think he has this great experience and that's what drives him that stuff does work but it's his preparation it's his dedication to preparation it's his process that gets him to be able to do that consistently and then I also had number two was make your content about your audience. A lot of people say that, but they don't actually do it. And it's not a throwaway term or a throwaway word. When you're working on your content, when you're thinking about who you're delivering, actually think about what's important to them and make sure that the content reflects that. And then lastly, I love this one. Just because your content's dry doesn't mean you have to deliver it dryly. Every person that's listening to this can take that as a takeaway because we can all fall into that communicating technical information but thinking we have to do it in a very... Technical dry manner, which is the furthest thing from the truth. So, Eva, I want to once again thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And why don't you take us away with your best routine or habit?
1: So, my best routine or habit is to get outside every day, no matter the weather, no matter what is what's going on. Is to make sure I have time outside every day to just clear my head, get fresh air, even if it's cold air, even if it's wet air, even if it's hot and humid air. So, getting outside every single day. I think is just one of the key cornerstones of health and happiness.
0: Love it. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. See you next week.